Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Asad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Lior Halevi, and we'll be talking about his latest book, Modern Things on Trial, Islam's Global and Material Reformation in the Age of Rida, 1865 to 1935, on our show today. As a historian of Islam, Lior Halevi explores the interrelationship between religious laws and social practices in various contexts, medieval and modern. He is the author of two books, Muhammad's Grave, Death Rites and the Making of Islamic Society, published by Columbia University Press in 2007, and Modern Things on Trial, Islam's Global and Material Reformation in the Age of Rida, 1865 to 1935. Henceforth, just Modern Things on Trial, published by the same university press this year of 2019 which also forms the topic of our discussion today. Alevi's first book won the Middle East Studies Association's Albert Hurani Award, as well as the Phi Beta Kappa's Ralph Waldo Emerson Award and other distinctions from the American Academy of Religion and the Medieval Academy of America. In addition to Muhammad's Grave and Modern Things on Trial, Halevi co-edited a book, Religion and Trade, Cross-Cultural Exchanges in World History, 1000 to 1900, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. He's also written many scholarly and popular articles and received his PhD in History and Middle East Studies from Harvard University. Currently, he is Associate Professor of History and Associate Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University. Modern Things on Trial analyzes Muslim responses to modern goods, from the toothbrush to the telegraph, in cities awakening to global exchange during Europe's final imperial expansion. It focuses on religious and legal debates about toilet paper, gramophones, photographs, railway projects, hats, tailor pants, banknotes, lottery tickets, and other strange and wonderful things. Why did Muslims debate whether to legalize or outlaw these technological and commercial objects? Not because their religion made them wary of quote-unquote Western innovations, but because they recognized that interactions with these things were changing their practices, norms, and values in fundamental ways. Early adopters and enthusiastic consumers were convinced that the changes were for the better, but they lacked the knowledge and the authority to defend their choices effectively against conservative rivals. So they appealed to reformers, such as Rashid Rida, the Syrian-Egyptian publisher of an enlightened Islamic magazine, for advice. Modern Things on Trial argues that their entanglement with these new commodities and technologies was the driving force behind local and global projects to rediscover Islam's foundational spirit and realize modernity's religious and secular premises. Without further ado, I now welcome Dr. Lior Halevi to our podcast. Welcome, Lior. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here, Assad. It's a great honor to have you. And as you know, Lior, it's customary for us to begin our podcast discussion with a brief biographical sketch of our authors. So would you be able to share a little bit about you and your intellectual journey overall? You know, your first book was on ritual practices in the context of funerary rites in medieval Islam. And this one is thoroughly concerned with modernity. Um, and we'd all be really interested to know what led you from there to here. You're right. There was a radical change in the focus of my research from my first to my second book. In, in graduate school, my training was in medieval history. I focused first on medieval Islamic history and also comparatively on medieval Judaism and medieval Christianity. And my first book which you mentioned was a social and cultural history of death and death rites in the Eastern Mediterranean, Mesopotamia, and the Arabian Peninsula during Islam's formative period in the 7th and 8th centuries. So it's quite a leap for me to turn to this um, new project focusing on the late 19th and 
early 20th century and having nothing to do with death or death rituals. Well, I knew when I finished my first book that I wanted a challenge. I knew it would be relatively easy to write a follow-up study on a different set of early Islamic rituals, but I really wanted to strike um, out into new territory and do something quite new and different. And one of the things that really interested me was to think about ways of relating religious ideas and economic practices and to think about cross-cultural trade, about exchange between Muslims and others from a religious perspective. I basically started off my research by asking myself the following question. How did medieval Muslim jurists assess the benefits and disadvantages of trade with non-Muslims? And while researching this question, still very much in the medieval context, I realized that what interested me most was focusing this question not on trade in the abstract, but specifically on objects of trade, commodities, technologies that ended up giving rise to theological discussions. And I started to read some early modern and modern treatments of this topic, at first just out of curiosity, without a plan to write a book uh, on uh, the uh, on the modern period, but the modern discussions really drew me in, especially the discussions of modern reformers, including Mohammed Rashid Rida, and this was for a few reasons. One is that they treated my topic in a really robust and extensive way. And I came to realize that that if there was a time in history when my topic had been of utmost historical importance for Muslim scholars and Muslim societies at, at large, then it was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the period that economic historians call the first globalization. It was in this period that European empires introduced all sorts of new things into colonies populated by Muslim subjects. And in the process, they provoked multiple searching discussions about the relationship between Islam and modernity. In the second place, I noticed that modern authors, reformers in particular, engaged extensively with early and medieval Islamic sources. This was really appealing to me as a medievalist because I had the training to research these medieval sources independently, basically to figure out what creative sources they were making, to see what they were glossing over, to see how they themselves were interpreting the past. Actually, if I might share this One of the greatest challenges that I faced in writing modern things on trial came from my training as a medievalist, in that I quite abandoned it. (laughs) Unlike modernists who uh, train themselves to read quickly through an abundance of evidence, medievalists learn to treat evidence as a rare and precious thing. Medieval historians learn techniques for extracting a great deal of historical information from scarce sources. I remained committed to these techniques, even as I turned to modern history. And this, I think, is 
one of the distinguishing characteristics of modern things on trial, that it's a modern history with many traces of medievalism in it. Okay, so let's actually talk about the project itself. Now, I wanted to briefly start with your theoretical framework going into the substantive nuts and bolts. This work is about the Muslim treatment of modern And yet at the same time, you caution that we ought not to understand this with a simple paradigm of quote-unquote westernization. And you make two arguments against such a paradigm. One, that Muslim jurists had a, quote, pragmatic tendency to interpret legal, comma, uh, sorry, had a pragmatic tendency to interpret legal commandments flexibly in order to sanction current developments, end quote, because their tradition was not a fixed force that prevented them from moving forward in time, but a quintessence that allowed them to make sense of dynamic changes in their universe. This is your first argument. The second argument is that these foreign imports were not equipped with an awesome mechanism for acculturation. Rather, you argue that Muslims consciously appropriated these products and made them their own in a sort of way through active mediation and rigorous discussion over their merits. Am I getting this right? Would you be able to elaborate on this framework just a little bit? In the course of my research, while listening to my sources, I learned not to think of the goods in question as foreign goods from the West. To speak of them in these terms is to see them from an anachronistic geopolitical perspective. When Muslim jurists deliberated new technological objects, they rarely refer to their origin abroad. Quick example, when they issued fatwas about the gramophone, for example, they refer to it as the gramophone, not as an American gramophone or as a gramophone. Artificially identifying these goods as Western reflects, in my view, either a Eurocentric bias or a polarized post-war view of the world as divided between Islam and the West. But referring to these goods as Westernizing innovations is uh, even more problematic, I think. It betrays a deterministic approach to technology where the presumption seems to be that Muslim users will become westernized by using Western goods. This is not really at all what happened. When we reflect on late imperial Muslims and their relationship to goods made in European factories, we should think of a process of entanglement, not a clash of civilizations. Muslim societies became entangled with these instruments without losing their religion or their culture. It's not that religion or culture remained fixed, unchanged. Actually, I think that there was quite a lot of significant religious and cultural change in this period. Yeah, as you argue right. in your book. But contemplate just for a moment that new media could be used for French and Christian communications, but of course they could also be used for Arabic and Islamic communications. Let me paraphrase here my favorite historical anthropologist, Marshall Salins. He has written about cultural endurance in the face of colonial encounters. Uh, he has a book chapter on this in um, a volume edited by Lorraine Daston, and it's titled something like Sentimental Pessimism. Anyway, to paraphrase him, I put it this way. European goods did not make Muslim users more like Europeans. They made them more like themselves. 
In some cases, the adoption of new technologies had religious consequences. And when this happened, extensive internal debates took place. Early adopters and enthusiastic consumers faced opposition. And they had to find ways to defend their choices from challenges and attacks. Each side in these debates formulated their position in Islamic legal terms. And unable to agree, they presented their cases to experts on Islamic law known as muftis, jurists with the authority to issue religious and legal opinions that are known as fatwas. Now, not surprisingly, European colonial administrators, such as the Earl of Cromer in Egypt, tended to represent Islamic law as an obstacle to their civilizing mission and vision of modernity. But even Cromer himself recognized that jurists who self-identified as religious reformers had a tendency to interpret scripture and law flexibly, pragmatically, with a disposition to sanction new products and practices. More traditional and conservative legal thinkers also, by the way, found ways to approve these things, albeit reluctantly and with any number of caveats. Historians of modern Islam have represented the tendency of Islamic reformers to sanction all sorts of modern developments as exceptional. They've attributed it to the supposed borrowing of European utilitarian doctrine by Muslim reformers. I disagree with this attribution. A tendency toward pragmatism was present in Islamic jurisprudence thick long before European hegemony. 19th and 20th century Muslim jurists could easily have exercised this tendency without reading a single word of Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, or other European philosophers. In fact, I think that pragmatism in Islamic law is a characteristic we find just as easily in medieval legal discussions concerning commerce and new political arrangements, um, as I've argued elsewhere. So you start your introduction in chapter one with some interesting anecdotes about the synthetic toothbrush fatwa and the toilet paper fatwa, respectively. And it's something I found quite interesting and relevant for our discussion. So apparently around 1940, the Indian jurist Muhammad Shafi wrote a fatwa to dissuade his followers from using a synthetic toothbrush, ostensibly because it was an innovation, a bid'ah. And you write that this attitude becomes easier to understand when you consider that this jurist came from a revivalist movement that arose in the wake of the rebellion of 1857, which itself was prompted in part because of rumors that the paper cartridges of the rifle muskets given to Indian Hindus and Muslims were coated with the fat of forbidden animals. Similarly, when we talk about the quote-unquote toilet paper fatwa of Rashid Rida, where he permitted its use, we find that in the Sudan, there were those who were discomfited by it because, quote, a foreign commodity that a Muslim subject might have heedlessly incorporated into his toilet routine in a more relaxed setting became, in such trying circumstances, a contested object precisely the kind of strange, precisely the kind of strange new thing that might foster as a marker of external danger, an impression of internal solidarity. End quote. What is the connection to the response toward these otherwise innocuous products in the broader context of imperial power plays during the same period? This seems to be a prominent theme in your book. Uh, a prominent work of cultural anthropology from the last century, Mary Douglas's Purity and Danger, discusses how very different 
religious and legal systems deal with what she called matter out of place. I first encountered this formulation when I was an undergraduate, and I thought about it quite a bit when writing about synthetic toothbrushes and toilet paper. For different reasons, in different places, these objects were perceived by some Muslim circles as ritually dangerous. The synthetic toothbrush made its debut in India under the British Raj after the introduction of boar bristle toothbrushes. The benefits of this hygienic tool were suspected, especially in the Obandi madrasas, which valued ritual purity and prophetic precedence, not the latest English trends. As for toilet paper, it entered the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan on European steamships, and the captains of these steamships apparently prohibited Muslim passengers from performing an ablution in the privy. Imperial power was in play here, and I think it affected the first impressions of the object. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that there ever occurred a universal Muslim reaction to symbols of imperial power or matter out of place. My approach is actually very different from Douglas's universalizing approach to systems of purity. I show that Muslims, in effect, place these objects on trial in particular circumstances in different historical settings, such as the two examples that I just gave, one in Doban, the other one in um, an Anglo-Egyptian steamship, and they debated their advantages. Now, some argued that these objects belonged in Muslim societies, that they did not pose any sort of ritual danger, and even that they were religiously irrelevant or hygienically superior. So what we have really is vital contestation and debate, not a unified system of purity reacting to imperial objects. So now let's talk about Islamic law in the period between 1865 and 1935, which you call the Age of Rida. Typically, when we think of Islamic law, we think of it as a jurist or a team of jurists working independently to form their rulings in a sort of disembodied way from the rest of society. And yet this seems to be a very idealized or incomplete picture, particularly as it concerns modernity. In your formula, you talk about Islamic law from below, which gives lay people a place in the formulation of the law. You write that, quote, the commodity came first, the religious debate among lay persons followed it, and the reformer's expert legal ruling arrived in the end. In this process, the inquiries posed by a wide range of non-jurist laypeople shaped the ways in which the jurists responded to these very inquiries. These questioners, or mustaftis, also came from professional classes where they would outrank the jurist and the mufti in certain areas. Now, you write that these mustaftis played an essential role in legal practice by inspiring, motivating, and pressuring muftis to extend the sharia as the ideological superstructure to convert new modes, to cover new modes of behavior. Sorry. Can you break all that down for us? What is Islamic law from below? Sure. Great question and a very deep question. I think to do justice to it, I should begin by giving a little bit of the historical context and then spell out my arguments. During the 19th century, Colonial regimes and modernizing states effectively cut off branches of Islamic jurisprudence. 
this period of history is known not only for the marginalization of the clerical establishment, but also for the construction of legal systems that promoted secular laws at the expense of religious laws. The division between public and personal law, or if you will, between secular and communal religious law, meant that Islamic law was officially relegated to play a role in family affairs, marriage contracts, inheritance disputes, divorce proceedings. Sharia courts were given limited authority. They were not vested with the competence and jurisdiction to deal with commercial and criminal cases that now fell under the authority of other courts, which ruled on the basis of imperial codes and disregarded Islamic law. That's the historical background that I was mentioning. Rida's response to this predicament was remarkable. Instead of reconciling himself to this situation and working within a legal system in Egypt, for instance, that had diminished the authority and prestige of Islamic judges, he became an Islamic entrepreneur. He founded his own publishing house and magazine, Al-Manar, The Lighthouse, he dedicated this enterprise, an Islamic business enterprise, to enlightened ideals and the project of Islamic reform. Its success within and beyond the British Empire enabled him to become an independent interpreter of Islam's sacred law. What I mean by this is that it gave him the freedom to offer religious and legal advice to individuals as an expert on all branches of Islamic jurisprudence without the obligation to limit his purview to the positive laws of the state. In this capacity, as the mufti of a magazine that would reach Arabic readers from Brazil to China, he cultivated a juridical approach that was more pragmatic than idealistic. He wanted Muslims to flourish in pluralistic legal regimes. Among other things, this meant issuing rulings or fatwas that allowed Muslim subjects to observe non-Islamic laws. All of this should help us to appreciate Rida's historic roles as an entrepreneurial Islamic publisher and as a global mufti. I, I bring these roles to light in my book and emphasize the imperial and trans-imperial circulation of his magazine. But you're right about my argument in the book. I do, um, I do definitely argue that interpretations of Islamic law and new reformist ideals emerge from below, not from the minds of famous Muslim scholars such as Rida. Fatwas are ideal sources for understanding this process because their responses to questions raised by a wide range of social actors facing particular circumstances, issues of the moment, I pay close attention to these questions, to the persons who posed them, and to underlying historical factors. In some respects, I build here on the work of other historians of Islamic law who have also seen fatwas as dynamic sources that have permitted Muslim jurists to keep up with the times. However, I highlight the role of fatwa seekers, mustaftis. Fatwa seekers have been woefully neglected in Islamic legal studies, where the emphasis has rather been on the power and influence of high legal authorities. This is what you had suggested in your question. But fatwa seekers are the ones who frame the legal discussion. Their questions guide 
and constrain the Mufti. In Almanar, by the way, their name appears printed immediately before the ruling, and once or twice in my book, I refer to them as first authors. Rida responded to their questions directly, and he's best seen as a responsive Mufti, definitely not a legal mind reflecting in a social and material vacuum. If I may add one thing, there was a commercial dimension to these legal communications. Rida created a new and, I think, unprecedented policy. He basically made fatwas a privilege that he granted mainly to readers who subscribed to his magazine. The cost of subscriptions was high. Only an elite, relatively affluent, well-off readers could afford it. When, when I got into the business side of Almanar, I calculated, calculated that Rida made a fairly good living just out of these subscriptions. He depended on them for their livelihood, for his enterprise, for his, for his entire ref, project of reform. In their questions, the fatwa seekers, the subscribers, often made it pretty clear what kind of ruling they hoped for. Again, the questions stemmed out of legal debates and in their societies, and they occupied a side on these debates. And typically, he obliged. So yes, Assad, we have to give credit to fatwa seekers as legal agents. One more point in response to your multifaceted question. I found that many of fatwa seekers' questions arose in connection with local religious debates. And these debates frequently concerned the Muslim use of new technologies and commodities. As a result, when we think about the generation of Islamic legal interpretations, we can't or we shouldn't focus on the mufti first. We need to consider all of the preceding social and material events. On this basis, I'd urge historians of Islamic law to see fatwas not as causes or potential causes that may or may not set a process in motion, but as effects. Fascinating. So I guess... I have a follow-up to that multifaceted question, and is that uh, and that is how do you relate this to quote the making case by case of Islam's reformation or material reformation? Right. So for a century now, studies of Islamic reform in this context, a late imperial context, have focused on the ideas and politics of an elite group of activist scholars, Al Afghani, Muhammad Abdu. And, and Muhammad Rashid Rida. And they've argued that their ideas for reform derived from European ideas, and also, by the way, that their program of reform failed to change as they wanted the Islamic tradition, in part because the origin of these ideas was a foreign one, a European one. I feel that this is too narrow, too intellectual and too elitist a view of reform. I think, for one, that an Islamic reformation did take place and that this process of religious reform had more to do with new goods and new material practices than with new ideas. It had more to do with the actions of Islamic consumers than 
with the thoughts of Islamic intellectuals. The subtitle to my book, Islam's Global and Material Reformation, hints at this argument. I refer in the book to modern objects that sparked legal discussions all over the world and contributed case by case to this broad process of reform. Rida was definitely not the director or orchestrator of this reformation, even though his name appears in the subtitle and I feature him so prominently in my book. He was merely a very effective responder to it. And I think Almanar is actually a great source that reflects this broader process. So now let's discuss a few case studies from chapter four and five to help concretize the discussion a little bit. Money and music, two perennially hot topics in modernity. How did Rida and his contemporaries deal with the emergence of national banknotes and the rise of new economic arrangements that included such things as interest? And what was all the buzz about, about the Quran and the gramophone? What compromises did Rida make in his legal reasoning toward these economic and material developments? These are great examples to put together, Assad, um, and, and for us to think about religion and materiality. It happens that the image on the cover of the book, as I think you know, is a montage of banknotes and a gramophone record. Is, is that what, is that what uh, yes. made you link them together? Yes, yes. I love the cover, by the way, and, and I give all the credit for it to Columbia University Press's creative design team. I had the images to provide them, but I had no idea what to do with them in terms of designing a cover, and they came up um, with this fantastic image. Anyway. It's brilliant. Uh, the, the banknotes are one Egyptian pound notes issued by the National Bank of Egypt, and I think those on the cover from 1899 or thereabouts. And the record features a famous singer of the turn of the 20th century, Sheikh Salama Hijazi of Egypt. I discuss each of these objects in depth in separate chapters. Both of them may be well described as objects of translation. And this is a term I borrow from my friend Barry Flood's wonderful monograph on the flow of material culture across a Hindu-Muslim frontier. A British banker owned half of the shares of the Egyptian National Bank, and the banknotes were actually designed by an English engraver and printer who chose for um, the bill an incongruous Orientalist illustration, a Bactrian camel, uh, as well as a dromedary. And as you know, the two-humped animal is native to the steppes of Central Asia. It's not an Egyptian species. Moreover, Egypt was not yet an independent nation. It was characterized at the time as a veiled protectorate by British colonial officials. So we can speak of these banknotes as national Egyptian banknotes only if we put the word national between quotation marks. The disc is also a fascinating object of translation in, in that it bears the imprint of more than one culture. Salama Hijazi sang only in Arabic, but the text printed on the label was in Arabic and English, and the record was pressed by a German company, Odeon Records, and played, probably, on an American gramophone. These objects confound nationalist approaches to history. The material qualities of the two objects were critical to the religious and legal discussions. We're accustomed to hearing about Islamic opposition to interest or usury, riba, 
And the issue is almost invariably cast in abstract terms, as you suggested. But I discovered that the modern debate was very much rooted in material objects and institutions, banks and banknotes. Paper money, especially, posed a legal conundrum. Muslim tradition had established some technical restrictions on a number of exchanges involving, for example, gold for gold and silver for silver exchanges in certain amounts. But it was not at all clear how, if at all, to apply these anti-usury restrictions to exchanges that that happened with banknotes whose value could not be established by their volume or by their weight, as you did with gold and silver. A similar issue arose when jurists thought about applying the alms tax to the new paper currency, the rules of the past which addressed how to assess taxes on precious metals, not on, say, copper or, for that matter, paper as a commodity, were just not directly applicable applicable to paper money. And one thing that really struck me, by the way, is that the first fatwa about paper money was issued in response to a question by a sheikh and merchant, a pearl merchant from Bahrain, uh, Sheikh Mukbil, I think is his name. And he basically said that in view of all the technical difficulties presented by paper money, there would need to be a whole revisiting of Islamic jurisprudence in these areas in order to render Islamic law effective once more. In, in other words, he was thinking about a need to reform Islam in order to make it relevant to the new object. And his very framing of the question is what prompted Rida to first deliberate on it. So it works very well to illustrate this argument about reform coming from below, as it were. Records of the Quran on shellac discs were the objects of many local debates. Let's focus just on one, uh, which has to do with religion and materiality. The Arab diaspora in Singapore, a British crown colony, worried about a secular trade in recordings of God's word. Basically, what bothered them was that Muslim shopkeepers who were Christian were handling these discs without due reverence. Restrictions existed in Islamic law about non-Muslims touching Quranic manuscripts, and especially they're suspected if they possibly had ritual impurities on their hands. So the Arab Singaporeans wanted to know, did the same restrictions not apply to disc records? No, they did not, argued Rida in the fact that he wrote. In his view, material impurities could not defile Quranic records because God's words, when stored and transmitted through this new medium, were invisible. Incidentally, Rida's rulings about gramophones and the Quran serve really well to illustrate his approach to religion and commerce, as well as, I think, my thesis concerning Islam's material reformation in his age. I coined the expression laissez-faire Salafism to characterize his commitment to free, to, to free trade and or freer trade and Islamic reform. 
he was very keen on Quranic discs. He saw them as agents of reform, which would serve effectively to spread Muslim scripture abroad, especially to societies that did not use Arabic as a native tongue. This is definitely significant, but I'd like to emphasize too that Islamic consumers bought these discs and began listening to them well before Rida issued any fatwas about that. And the fatwa seekers who asked Rida questions about the legality of the instruments themselves used the keyword islah, reform, when referring to the benefits of Quranic discs in places like Kazan, Russia. So moving on to chapter six, I'd like to bring to attention once more the nexus between these material commodities and the imperial politics of the day. So you have a chapter titled Telegraphs, Photographs, Railways, and Law Codes. And in this chapter, we find Ridha once again open to legitimating these advances through a pragmatic yet sophisticated style of legal reasoning. The one I'd like to draw our attention to is the European law codes because these aren't, these aren't material goods per se. What precisely were these codes? And what was Ritha's logic undergirding the acceptance of them? So that chapter focuses on tools of empire, instruments and technologies that extended the reach and the power of the imperial state and also on juridical arguments for the use of these tools by state and society. These arguments were not just for the appropriation of these tools by Muslims, but also for basically the advantages to states using them regardless of the religion of the rulers of those states. The question about law codes was raised by a Punjabi personage, Hakim Nur ad-Din. He subsequently became the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Messianic community, and this community would adopt a conciliatory stance before British rule. And I discovered when researching the context behind his question that his law- lawyers worked within the colony's legal system. Muradin wanted to know if it was permissible for a Muslim judge employed by the British government to make a judgment in accordance with what he called the English codes of India. In other words, secular laws that had been codified. He sent his question to the Egyptian reformer Muhammad Abdu, who was quite old at this time, near his death, in fact. And Abdu is the one who passed it on to his protege, Rashid Rida, and this is why Rida ended up issuing the fatwa in Almanar. Rida's answer may surprise you, given his reputation as a scholar who worked for the restoration of Islamic law. In this case, he ruled that a Muslim judge would perform a sublime service if he worked for the British Raj. He explained that English laws were closer in spirit to the Sharia, Islam's sacred law, than the laws of other states. I think here he's dissing on the Ottoman Empire. (laughs) Instead of approaching the situation idealistically, he reasoned once more pragmatically, basically arguing that a Muslim had a duty to strengthen Islamic rules to the best of his ability. And for this reason, he thought, yes, it was not just acceptable, but an advantage to have Muslim judges working in a 
secular English legal system. So in chapter 7, which covers the period following World War I, we find Rida hardened in the wake of the Egyptian Revolution of 1919 and the subsequent Egyptian boycott of British goods, as well as from Ataturk's reforms, which, as we all know, abolished the caliphate. And yet you argue against you know, the conventional radicalization thesis regarding Rida, arguing that his overall attitude towards modernity, industrial development, and capitalism remained much the same. So the question here really is two parts. What exactly did change for Rida and what stayed the same? And how did this affect his approach to the issues overall? Right. So let me spell out first the radicalization thesis. The radicalization thesis holds that Rida became an extremist in the interwar period, or maybe beginning after Abdul's death, that he turned his back on his liberal modernist roots to espouse an anti-Western fundamentalist agenda and that he contributed due to his great influence to the supposed transformation of Salafism or Sunni revivalism from a forward-looking to a backward-looking ideology. This thesis is popular, but it does not rest on a solid evidentiary foundation. It offers a simplistic historical narrative that I find, frankly, superficial and untenable. Rida was nowhere near as influential as this thesis presumes. By and large, the changes in his thought reflected broader cultural turns. Some of his ideas did change in some respects. Others, by and large, stayed the same. There, there was, in my view, more continuity than change over the course of his career. Let me illustrate by discussing an interwar shift. In the late 20s, he wrote a few fatwas where he used strong language to denounce trendy Muslims who took to wearing the latest French and European fashions. I think I discuss especially sexy, tight French pants. Um, I, I contrasted these fatwas with earlier writings when he had argued for the benefits of some European clothes, especially military uniforms. The shift in tone is not insignificant, but it was actually reflective of a broader political turn in Egypt, a turn toward economic nationalism that involved, among other things, boycotts of English goods. Greta espoused the politics of consumer resistance, anti-imperial consumer resistance, relatively late, well after Indian and Egyptian nationalists had popularized this anti-colonial strategy. In addition, the shift in tone of his fatwas did not happen across the board. He continued in the interwar period to argue for freer trade between Muslims and others, and to urge Muslims to adopt whatever struck him as useful or advantageous. It's critical to acknowledge such complexities, I feel, in order to do justice to the history of modern Islam. In addition, the tendency among historians to take World War I as either the end point or the beginning of histories should be checked through studies giving more serious attention to historical continuities. 
Given its run from 1898 to 1935, I found Almanar magazine an ideal source to use to think about continuity across the World War. So as a tangent to that question, and something that really caught my interest was the appeal of Gandhi's philosophy and politics to Rida. How did a Salafi thinker and writer come to admire this Hindu ascetic and even come to publish the first translation of his famous health book for the Arab world. What was the con- what was the extent of this appeal, and what were its what was its relation to Rida's own agenda? That's a really good follow up question. I found the Arabic translation of Gandhi's Guide to Health quite by chance, and the discovery helped me to challenge one component of the radicalization thesis. I was searching World Cat for the publications of Almanar Press, and came upon the 1927 title, which I hadn't seen any reference to in, in scholarship about Almanar and Rashid Rida. Thanks to the marvels of interlibrary loan and you know the reach of my librarians, <laughs> I ended up getting my hands on a copy and found by reading the introduction and the footnoted glosses to the text that... Rashid Rida was a great admirer of Gandhi. This surprised me quite a bit because historians of Salafism have emphasized that in this period, in in the late 20s, he became the most prominent and most effective defender of Wahhabism, of Saudi clerics from Najd who had as they've seen it, an anti-modern and very provincial attitude. Among other things, they've shown how with generous funding from the Saudi monarchy, the first Saudi king, he published volumes of doctrinal Wahhabi thought. There's much truth to this representation. He definitely published these volumes. He definitely became an apologist for the Saudi king. But how do we square the image of Rida as a Wahhabi apologist with the image of Rida as Gandhi's Arab champion? Right. Uh, the question is best left left unanswered, but <laughs> uh, allow me to suggest two answers that are not incompatible. The first is that Rida was the owner of a press. He published for profit. The second is that he was, like most human beings, like you and me, not a one-dimensional ideologue, but rather a complex person with varied tastes and inclinations. And Gandhi was a part of all that. And I guess one final question to close off as a treat for our listeners. There's just so much to discuss. Um. And I was wondering now if you can share with a little bit about your current project or what we can look forward to you from what we can look forward from you in the future. I am planning on going back to medieval history, but not quite yet or not completely yet. Working on modern things on trial got me very interested in researching some more how different Muslim legal cultures have responded to global economic exchange. I've decided that the most interesting historical context for this research project is Saudi Arabia in the 20th century. 
In the course of this century, the interior of the peninsula, Naj, went from being one of the, mo- one of the most isolated regions of the world to a place utterly transformed by globalization. The pace of growth and development was unparalleled and astonishing. As a result of oil wealth, Saudi Arabia became one of the world's leading importers of goods and also foreign workers. All of this is well known, but my interest is in how these social and economic processes transformed Najdi Salafism, the country's originalist religious movement. Instead of representing this movement as stable doctrinally or ideologically, as somehow or other going back to the 18th century and continuing um, with little change in its fundamental stances and positions, I want to understand how it changed to flourish or try to flourish in new historical conditions. I'm planning on focusing in particular on the writings of, of a grand mufti named Bin Baz, who died in the last year of the millennium, 1999. And recently, while reading an Arabic biography of him, I encountered a description of him as a latter-day salaf, as a kind of relic of the early Islamic past. This made me feel that I definitely found the right project for me, one where I can maybe combine my interest in 20th century Islam with my interest in 7th century Islam and see what comes out of it. Well, thank you, Lior. Well, there you have it, folks. Modern Things on Trial, Islam's Global and Material Reformation in the Age of Rida, 1865 to 1935 by Columbia University Press. Thanks for being on the show with us today, Professor. Asad, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your informed and challenging questions. I've really appreciated your time and effort. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.